0: Hello and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Katherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Daniel Grohl from Carleton College to discuss the author meets critic section of this uh, issue where we're talking about Dan Grohl's book, Conceiving People, Genetic Knowledge and the Ethics of Sperm and Egg Donation. And we'll be talking about some of the responses that Dan got to his book, through this Author Meets critic session. So hello, Dan.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining me. Um, I wonder if you could just give us a sort of very brief summary, which I know is difficult, of yep. the book.
1: Yeah. So uh, the book is about the ethics of um, sperm and egg donation and particularly on the ethics of anonymous versus non-anonymous donation. Uh, And I argue against anonymous donation. So I think when people conceive with donated sperm and eggs, uh, they should, other things being equal, use uh, someone who's willing to be known, uh, an open donor or an identity release donor. Uh, And I make the case uh, by appeal to the um, empirical fact, uh, to the extent that it's been established by social science. Science, um, that most donor-conceived people are quite interested in knowing um, who their donor is. And so the argument really turns on the idea that parents should put their children in a position to satisfy their interests, um, whatever those interests might be, um, provided the interests aren't pernicious uh, or immoral or problematic. But if they're what you might call uh, um, healthy or normal interests, then parents ought to help their children meet them. Um, And so to the extent that um, it's foreseeable that a donor-conceived person is going to have an interest in knowing their donor, uh, I make the argument that um, it's part of sort of one's parental obligations to help your child meet that interest. And so that means uh, using a um, open or identity release donor. I mean the same thing by those terms. Someone whose identity uh, can come to be known by the child at some point. Uh, So that they should use uh, an identity release donor rather than an an anonymous donor.
0: And for folks who might not be so familiar with this sort of area, um, is it more common to have known donors at the moment or is it more common to have anonymous donors at the moment?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it depends where you are. So in some uh, countries, there's no such thing as anonymous donation. Mm. So in the UK, there's not anonymous donation. And in fact, they're having, um, uh, in fact, this is the year, this is 18 years after they outlawed anonymous donation. So all the social scientists are waiting <laughs> with anticipation to see what kind of requests come in. Um, and, oh, because and the
0: first- cohort will be
1: Turning 18 and so able to access uh, the identity of their donors, exactly. Um, Colorado, just uh, last year, is the first state in the United States to outlaw anonymous donation. Um, there are other countries like France where you can only do anonymous donation. So it really depends where you are. And of course, that will affect what your options are. So if you live in France, uh, my argument is not you must go seek out uh, an identity release donor because that's really hard to do. Um, but it, the, the, at a less individual level, the argument suggests that we should be moving towards systems where identity release is the norm. Um, part of and so in the United States, it's becoming more and more common. And my understanding is is that um, uh, sperm and egg clinics offer it, uh, no or sorry, uh, identity release donors much more frequently, uh, and that the norms have changed on the advice that people give. So it used to be that um, you know, in the bad old days, Uh, here, some gametes, let's not ask too much where they came from. Don't ever talk to your child about it because, of course, it was typically uh, um, uh, bionormative, heteronormative uh, couples looking to conceive a man and a woman. Um, And now the advice is to not keep it uh, it from, uh, not keep uh, a child's donor-conceived status from the child. Um, And, of course, for, um, you know, gay and lesbian couples, keeping the secret's not an option in the first place. Um, But one thing that is not, (laughs) unfortunately, is still quite common is that people will intend to disclose, but then they don't. So my understanding of the social science is that um, heteronormative parents who announce that they plan to disclose often won't um, because, you know, the time is quote unquote, never right. And then time passes and it gets harder and harder. So.
0: Interesting. So I wonder if you could maybe say something about the, the kind of I don't know, I guess this interest that people might have in their, in having their genetic information. I mean, on the one hand, that sounds like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. It could be really useful maybe to have genetic information of various kinds. But on the other hand, is there something that kind of outweighs that, that makes you think, I don't know, maybe that's not so valuable?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, so one thing to say right away is I think everyone acknowledges that there can be pretty significant health and medical reasons mm-hmm. to want to know your genetic uh, lineage. Uh, um so you could you know if you don't know that you're donor conceived you might think that you're prone to certain genetic conditions because your social parents or one of them has but you're not because you're not genetically related to one of your parents um or um it could be that you are prone to a certain uh gen- a condition that's passed down through the genes but you have no idea because um you, you either you don't know that you' donor conceived or maybe you do but you don't know your health your health history so that's that's really um important um i tend to move past that quite quickly in the book because i think that that though it's important, it's not getting at what interests, I think, many, many people that are interested in this kind of information, donor conceived or not, um, which is that, uh, so the, the, the idea that you hear a lot is that um, knowing who your genetic progenitors are, knowing who your genetic parents are, is really important to understanding yourself, to identity mm-hmm. formation, to knowing your place in the world. Um, so I focus mostly um, on that rationale. Um, and I'm I'm with you. I think it's an intelligible desire. Um, I think many people have it. I think it can be a really important part um, of identity construction and the story that you tell about yourself. Um, so I, 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 I'm on board there. There's um, uh, a position which I argue against, which is sort of most famously advocated for by um, David Velleman, uh, which says, well, actually, Uh, It's true that people are interested in knowing this, but that's a little bit like saying people are interested in drinking water, which is true. Um, But saying, oh, we should give people water because they're interested in it seems to be missing the main point, which is that you really need water. There's a really good reason why people are interested in water. You absolutely need it to to flourish. (laughs) Now, Bellman doesn't think that the need for genetic knowledge, as I call it, is like the need for water. Um, But I think he thinks it's not so far away in the sense that it's a sort of a fundamental good uh, and that a life without it um, is um, severely diminished, even though one could flourish in many other respects. I'm inclined to think that that overplays the hand. Uh, Well, I think think he overplays his hand. I think it overplays uh, the importance of genetic knowledge because I'm inclined to think two things. One is that we have choices about how we understand ourselves um, that we are that that the the task of constructing your identity or telling a story about yourself is not purely epistemic it's not just it's not merely a task of discovery um, it's also a task of construction and deciding what matters to you and what doesn't and i think there are many people donor conceived and not who construct views of themselves and understand their place in the world without putting any particular emphasis on their genetic lineage so i think i think that shows that it it needn't play the role that velman thinks it does and then relatedly um i think uh, it's well worth asking about why we have the interests that we have. Um, And this is true of just any interest, right? We're all social creatures, we're raised in particular times and places that have particular values and cultures and institutions. And they, they inform, who we are uh, in some ways, in ways that I think are very healthy and productive, but in other ways, it can be very pernicious. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing I try to do is is sort of take a critical stance on this desire to know and wonder to what extent it's a function uh, of um, what the philosopher Charlotte Witt calls bionormativity or bionormative prejudice, mm-hmm. um, which is the idea that... Um, you know, proper family is constituted through genetic relations, that the platonic ideal of the family is a man and a woman with children that are genetically related to them. um, And that who we are is at base in a really fundamental way, a matter of the genes. Um, And that's a very common thought in our world. Um, And if you grow up, in that milieu, it's no surprise that if you discover that you're missing uh, something, and even putting it in terms of missing, I think is already stacking the deck a certain way, but that other people have something that you don't, um, no surprise that you would feel like you are really missing something important. Um, so I try to steer between the Velleman view on the one hand, which says, like, look, this is just. Fundamentally important. It's closer to, to needing water than 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 it is to something totally optional. I try to steer between that and the view that says this interest is in fact pernicious. It reflects bionormative prejudice that we would that, that if we dispensed with, we'd find that the interest just dis- disappeared altogether. Uh, and my view is, is that no, it, it can it, it's an intelligible interest, it can be a healthy interest. Um, And I don't think it would disappear if we if we somehow could snap our fingers and be rid of bionormativity, though maybe it wouldn't be as common and maybe it wouldn't be felt as strongly. But, you know, this is empirical conjecture. Who
0: knows? (laughs) I want to come back to that in a second, because I think that's an important place where a few of the critiques um, in this uh, symposium. Yeah. Kind of connected with your book. But I wanted to I guess this is pretty, this is like a probably pretty basic point, but I thought it might be um, worth for the listeners just commenting on um, what we're talking about when we're talking about interest, because it seems like on the one hand, you could say that people have an interest in knowing things about themselves, but that that interest is like a shallow thing. What we're just talking about there is that they'd like to know it's they're, they're curious or something like that. Yeah. Whereas yeah. sometimes in philosophical literature, the word interest actually means something much deeper where it's like there is a very significant good here yes that you have extra reason to want to pursue or obtain yeah. um and it seems like it's being used in both ways here kind of
1: you know that that's a that's a great point i mean the way that i use it in the book is i mean it uh, i mean to i mean Two things. I mean, one is, I mean it in this subjective sense, like it's mm-hmm. actually like like a, like a psychological item, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. So some people are interested in mm-hmm. in hockey and other people are interested in gardening. Right. Uh, uh, these are facts about their psychology. Uh, um, so, so that's, that's sort of the subjective side. So when I talk about people having this interest, that's, that's a report on people's psychologies. Um, and then there's this question of how significant an interest is it for the people that have it. Um, and um, I do my best to follow the social science here, which is which is kind of in its infancy on this topic. So uh, um, my view is very dependent on what the social science tells us. My reading of the social science is that most donor-conceived people who know they are donor-conceived would like this information. And the interest is significant in the sense that um, it is... And <laughs> the way I think I put it in the book, is it like, you know, it, it, it plays a fairly substantial role in their psychic economy, which, which doesn't mean that they're thinking about it all the time. Uh, it's nothing like an obsession or anything like that, um, but it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, I think the literature shows that the interest in a lot of cases is expressed as a form of curiosity. So my understanding is, is that, and I mean, I should have said this right off the bat, I'm not donor conceived, and I'm happy to talk about my relationship to the topic. Um, So I I am, uh, um, I mean, I don't think anyone can speak for donor conceived people, including any individual donor conceived person. Um, But I'm especially reliant on what the social scientists uh, um, uh, tell us. And so my reading of the social science Um, is that the majority of donor-conceived people who know they're donor-conceived would like this information um, and that they're not looking for another parent. Um, They're very often not looking for a deep relationship. Um, They are looking simply to know who the person is and to be minimally acquainted um, and typically to just sort of have questions answered about, um, I mean, in addition to the medical stuff about, who who made me what explains why I look the way that I do uh, um and that can sound superficial, but I guess i'm in, in a way that I have difficulty articulating why i don't I don't think it is superficial. I think it's like very understandable and can play a really significant role in people's lives so that mm-hmm. that's how I locate the nature of of the interest
0: yeah, thanks. that's helpful so. Let's talk about a couple of the um, responses, I guess, the commentaries on your book. So there are four of them. Um, Two of them by Roth and Brent approach the question of the interest that people have in their genetic knowledge as though either it could be not really a significant interest, or if it is a significant interest or when it shows up as a significant interest, it is only that because of the influence of the bionormativity that you were right. describing a moment ago. And then there's a, a third commentary by Scow um, is actually almost the flip side of those views where um, right. Scow is actually really skeptical that bionormativity is even a real thing. Yep. So that's kind of interesting. And I wondered if you could yes. just sort of say something about that.
1: That dynamic repeats itself a lot when I talk about this work. So um, yeah, which I don't know if that's a sign that I'm like definitely getting things wrong that <laughs> you know both views are like this is not right or or that's like no I've like really hit hit the middle. Yeah, to, to some people it just seems uh, obvious that bionormativity is doing a lot of work here, um, and to other and. To other people, the idea that there's even anything particularly puzzling or a philosophical question to be answered about why someone would want this information is puzzling. And I think for some, I don't think I don't think for Brad this is the case, but for some people, like offensive to think that there's even a question here. Why? What do you mean? Why would I want this information? What What could be important about this information? Um, I think the way I put in one of my responses, it's just like. Like it, it sounds a little bit like asking, like, why why is pain bad or something mm-hmm. like that? Just like the answer is right there. Um, and I don't quite know what to make of the fact that people seem to fall into one of these two camps. I mean, I think all of us are subject to certain pressures. I guess I'd say non-philosophical pressures that maybe push us toward one camp or the other. Um mm-hmm. uh, but, yeah, I, I, it's just it's a great observation, and uh, I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: and so, what's your response to the skepticism that bionormativity is
1: a real thing?
0: Is that a kind of empirical thing that you'd want to draw on, or is there a more philosophical answer?
1: I wouldn't want to draw on anything empirical in the mm-hmm. way that I try to draw on like the social science about what mm-hmm. donor can see people interested in because I, I it's not clear to me how you would go about measuring and with the normal tools of social science, how prevalent bionormativity is. Um, one thing that uh, Brad points out is that, you know, the, the uh, sort of the official progressive line is that uh, all families are equal, genetics don't make a family, love makes a family, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's true, but I don't think it takes very much to start observing in our culture this sort of trope of blood and kin uh, and, uh, who gets what from whom, where that's understood in genetic terms. Uh, so, it, it, I mean, this is just a tiny piece of evidence, but in the book, I, I give the example of this song by the musician, Walter Martin called, uh, Hey sister. Uh, and it's a fabulous song. Uh, Walter Martin is a great musician. I love his music, but in the song, the conceit of the song is that a brother and sister are singing to each other. Uh, and it's all about who they resemble in the family, uh, mm-hmm. who gets what from whom there are various jokes that trade on the fact that transmission comes down genetically and so couldn't run backwards. So the older brother couldn't have got something from the younger sister, for example. Uh, there's talk about there's a little tiny, tiny little bit of me and you, tiny little bit of you and me. Um, and, I, you know, I think Walter Martin here has just written a song that any I mean, I mean, he's a great songwriter, so not a lot of people could have written the way he writes the song. But I think the ideas show up all over the place um, in popular culture and everyday practice in the way that people relate um I mean, just I mean, I do this with my kids. You play the resemblance game all the time. Uh, oh, you look so much like your grandmother, so on and so forth. Um, and I think um those are all forms of making the biogenetic understanding of family the norm. Um, One thing that Brad pushes me on, which is right, I mean, I'm not super precise about what exactly bionormativity is, Um, but one thing I think is true is that there's a presumption that biogenetic relatedness is the family norm, where that's just understood as kind of like a statistical thought. Like, that's just the default assumption when when people think about a family, that that's how they're constituted. Um, There's nothing normative there, but I think uh, humans have a tendency to shade from the uh, something being normative in the statistical sense, being the norm or taken to be the norm in, a statistic, in the statistical sense to being normative in this evaluative sense. Um, I, I would just want to, to guess talk to people and give them examples uh, 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 in the world where it looks like the biogenetic understanding of the family is just it's like it's I mean, I feel like it's kind of like the the the, the air we breathe or the water that fish swim in, so to speak. It's mm-hmm. kind of everywhere once you start looking for it. I mean,
0: that's interesting because it kind of makes me think about the reasons that it seems like you give for um, wanting donation to be open. Um, at yeah. least partly sounds like some of the reasons are actually like love and trust and relationship oriented. It seems like there's something here where, at least a part of what you were saying in response, I think, to some of the, these um, criticisms is that. Well, the the quality of the relationship between the parents and the child is something that's really important on its own, and the way that that kind of functions, the fear that people have that it will be undermined by genetic yeah. knowledge, if it's uh, if you have a donor conceived or an adopted, I I think also maybe um, person um, in your family is actually connected to these ideas that we have about what's the kind of fundamental building block of a of a loving caring family relationship?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm a big advocate for openness and honesty for Really, you know, some like broadly consequentialist reasons, which is like I think things tend to go south with secret keeping, uh, but also for these reasons related to just like the nature of what it is to be in an intimate relationship with someone uh, um, and what it is to trust someone and to be honest with them, which I think, you know, it should be the case in, in intimate relationships, including relationships between parents um, and children. Uh, and I, I, I right. I think part of the issue is that we don't really have the right concepts now for thinking about ways of being related that don't that don't conform to like family notions of being related. And so even even the term donor is not a great term. I mean, in the United States, people in Canada, you can't sell, but in the United States, you can. Um, uh, you know, I use genetic parent, uh, but, you know, parent is a fraught term. Uh, parent by itself seems totally inappropriate. I, I'm inclined to think it's totally inappropriate. Um, so we don't we don't quite have the words and it's not just a matter of words. We seem not to have the concepts for how to think about these new ways of of, of relating between people. Uh, um, and I think that reflects Sort of what you're talking about, like an uncertainty or a fear about what it means to have someone who's genetically related to your child but is not their social parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'd be nice if we could just—I I mean, I'm using some of the work here of Alice McLaughlin, who—we to, mm-hmm. to need a broader notion of uh, uh, um, sort of a, of relatedness that can allow for the complexity of some of these relationships.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's. I think it's a great ideal to strive for. I think one thing that's really worth saying and that I, I mentioned in the book, but I don't think I give enough time to and which Amanda Roth has pushed me on is that I think there's a... Um, a lot of people who are interested in anonymous donation for for reasons that have nothing to do with being skeptical of the value of genetic knowledge or worries about their relationship with their child, but are really driven by concerns about the status of their parental rights. So I Mm -hmm. have in mind here, LGBTQ plus families um, who, uh, you know, very obvious reasons 30, 40 years ago to not want the donor to be involved in any way in family life for fear of parental rights being, um, you know, taken away. Uh, and it, it it looked like maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago, we could have said, Oh, we've moved past that. But I think in the United States, in particular, these days, those fears are very much on the horizon again. Um, and so, uh, while on the one hand, I encourage openness and open donation and the like, um, I think that needs to be paired with policies, laws and a culture that is 100% behind protecting the rights of non-traditional families.
0: Mm -hmm. And that kind of connects to the fourth um, commentary a little bit too, I think. So Russell has sort of says that she's skeptical of the idea of procreative beneficence, which is the idea that um, we should be having the best possible children that we should have, but also says something about how the focus, rather than the focus being on thinking about controlling information or the threat of information or something like that um she sort of emphasizes the way that people should rather think about how they want to be in their relationship with their child so what kind yeah. of parent should i be is the kind of important yeah. question that she thinks we should be asking instead of thinking about um the child that i should have and that's a, a bit of a different concern from the legitimate concern about saying like I'd like my parental rights to be um, protected. But they, it stems from the same, I think at least, it stems from the same attitude toward this knowledge and what the information, the genetic information represents.
1: Yes, right, right. I mean, I, I think there's a certain like irony that if you want um if you it, 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 the attempt to downplay the significance of genetic information in a person's life i think can can very radically backfire because it, it it ends up suggesting that like here's this thing that's um we can't even like talk about or shouldn't acknowledge it's like such a threat mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I my view is that if if you want someone's interest in genetic knowledge to develop in a way that is like is is healthy and uh, can be a you know part of their identity in the way that I think it often can be. Um, you don't want to keep it a secret. Um, you don't want to um, treat it as nothing. Uh, you just want it to be like I mean I, so I, I'm putting these in abstract terms, but I think like donor conceived people should know from the from their earliest memories that their' donor conceived. Um, I I think, um, ideally who their donor is would be known to them at an early age. Although, you know, there's complicating factors there because using a known donor, someone who's known to the, to the, to the parent or parents and the child from an early age is a, is a different kind of demand. But I think ideally that, that, that would be great. And then I, I kind of think it becomes like a little bit of a non-event, um, as opposed to something that gets revealed later. Um, and often by accident, mm-hmm. uh, and where and where parents. I've spoken to a number of donor-conceived people who are who have found out that they're donor-conceived and have found their donor and will not talk to their parents about it because they're worried their parents will freak out. Mm-hmm. And they're really worried about hurting their parents, and I just feel like this speaks to um, Kamisha Russell's piece that I feel like, th- though um, I completely understand. <sighs> why parents would feel that way. Um, I think it's not doing anyone a service as opposed to just trying to being honest and open. um, Yeah. And not keeping anything back.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. This has been such an interesting conversation. I want to ask you just one final question, which is actually, um, what was the motivation behind writing the book? Why did you decide to write this book?
1: Yeah. So questions about the nature of family have been on my mind for um, a a really long time. So I I routinely teach these topics, um, but my interest predates that. So um, I have three older sisters and all three of them um, are adopted. So non-traditional, in that sense, I grew up in a non-traditional family, uh, a family and I'm non adopted. So uh, um, a, a question where issues about genetic relatedness were sort of just always there. Um, but then the more immediate cause is that I myself am a donor. I'm a known donor um, to uh, two dear friends. Um, and so uh, um, I did not write the book and then decide that known donation was acceptable. Um, uh, uh, but I went the other way. I was a known donor and then I was like, ooh, hmm, lots of interesting issues here. Uh, and then ended up writing the book. So it's on my mind for personal reasons.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting well thank you so much for speaking with me
1: yeah this has been great thank you so much for the questions
0: my pleasure and thank you for listening to this episode of fabgad you can find dan's book wherever books of quality are sold and the symposium that we've been discussing with papers by amanda roth reuven brent kamisha russell and brad scow as well as a response from Dan, are in this issue of IJFAB, which is linked in this episode's notes. FabGab is hosted and produced by me, Catherine McKay. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. And you can subscribe to FabGab so that you'll never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.